Welcome to the latest bulletin from Red Star Radio, covering all the latest news from the front lines in Ukraine and Western Russia, and looking at the wider political and economic fallout of the war. What I'll be doing in this episode is going through the latest from the front lines, then looking at some other political stories that have come out in the course of the last 24 hours, before turning to a wider discussion of whether the peace plan that was put forward in March this year, which was almost signed by Ukraine, but for the last-minute interventions of the European Union countries, the Americans and the British, all of whom were in this together, would have been something that could have possibly worked, or whether any peace deal would have worked inside Ukraine and related to the breakaway regions or what were the breakaway regions of Donetsk and Lugansk or whether there would have been any possibility of peace given the attitude of the Maidan regime and its banderist uh, foot soldiers towards the Russian-speaking population or indeed whether Ukraine's very existence as a state, as a capitalist state, was indeed viable after the 2003-4 to so-called Orange Revolution or indeed whether this whole enterprise was doomed to failure from the very beginning. But let us start with the latest from the front lines. And as of today, the changes in the positions of the front line weren't too dramatic. There was some action up near Kharkov where there was uh, some clashes around the village of uh, Staritsa and the town of Volshansk. This was mainly based on um, exchanges of artillery fire with attempted Ukrainian maneuvers uh, suppressed by the artillery fire of the Russian armed forces. And there were attempts in the um, region of the Lukansk People's Republic where the armed forces of Ukraine attempted an advance near Kislivka uh, to reach uh, Novoya Dovanka. Uh, this ad- attempted advance did not succeed. The Russians are claiming they wiped this advance out via a preemptive artillery strike. And uh, this uh, thwarted the at- Ukrainian attempt to advance in this area. Meanwhile, in the to the northeast of Solodar, the Russian armed forces attacked uh, Belgorovka, and this is uh, in relation to the ongoing assault by the Wagner Group and the forces of the Donetsk People's Republic. Now, of course, they have joined the Russian Federation formally. These are now formally Russian armed forces that are advancing slowly through the southeastern uh, part of Solodar, which is near Bakhmut, and that this is part of their continued advance into the city. Now, recent photos came out of uh, Bakhmut, which revealed uh, that the internal part of the city, the city centre, is just basically a giant fortified armed camp of Ukrainian armed forces, and that they are intending to, as I've said before on this broadcast, make a stand there. So... No attempted withdrawal as of yet by the Ukrainian forces from Bakhmut. And so this leads us on to our regular discussion of what's going on down in Kherson. Uh, There has been increased fortification of the city. The Ukrainian defense minister admitted today that their advance in the Kherson region has, as he put it, slowed down in an interview that he gave to uh, Japanese TV today. And the truth is, though, that it's almost completely stopped. There are consistent probing attacks or attempts to test the Russian front line from the Ukrainians but again so far nothing huge has emerged we keep expecting uh, a Ukrainian offensive in the Kherson region again so far it hasn't happened Uh, maybe they are building up towards something or maybe they just don't have the men and equipment to carry this out I'll give you a reminder as I've stressed over the past couple of days the equipment of the armed forces of Ukraine seems to be deteriorating. 
They are using pickup trucks with um, heavy machine guns welded to the back of them. They're using domestic cars to get around in. That's not a sign of an army which has a lot of resources. And also, the equipment supplies to the front line are under increasing amounts of pressure. There are reports now that the Ukrainian electricity grid is no longer able to provide sufficient energy to power the electric trains that take the equipment and men to the front lines and that they're having to resort to using diesel trains which they don't have a lot of all of this by the way based on the legacy the industrial legacy of the soviet union how very ironic of course and so this presents an increasing difficulty for the ukrainians that's why zelensky is constantly going on the air begging the europeans and the americans for more assistance but the American military seem to be the ones who are getting increasingly reluctant to send the good stuff to Ukraine. The Poles, the Slovaks, the Czechs have burnt through their stockpiles of old Warsaw Pact equipment. The Poles have given over most of their T-72 tanks to Ukraine, most of which have been destroyed or knocked out of action for the meantime. And so the Europeans, the Eastern Europeans and the Western Europeans are running out of stuff that they can give to Ukraine and the armoured vehicles that they are giving are increasingly being destroyed or knocked out. Footage also emerged today of in uh, the Donetsk People's Republic a whole load of uh, German self-propelled guns that have been captured by the Russian armed forces and you're getting more and more photos coming out of more tanks, more armoured personnel carriers, more infantry fighting vehicles turning up that were supplied to Ukraine turning up in the ranks of the Russian armed forces because so this stuff gets knocked out but particularly the old Soviet stuff this was stuff that was built to withstand almost any kind of force and so what happens is because the Russians are so familiar with stuff like the T-64 tank that um, the Ukraine's used a lot of the captured ones even the ones that are damaged the Russians have them re-armed uh, repaired and back in the field again in a few days usually and so a lot of the stuff that the Donetsk forces and the Lukansk forces are using is stuff that's been captured or indeed sold to them by the Ukrainians. So this is a development that is going only going to get worse for Ukraine as the pressure on the energy grid increases, as the European countries run out of supplies, as the American military becomes increasingly unwilling to supply anything more. And of course the gigantic amount of proven corruption there is in the Ukrainian government means that there's going to be increasing problems with supplying of equipment to the armed forces of Ukraine and how they solve that is going to be an interesting question uh, I suspect they will not be able to solve it I suspect that Ukraine's high water mark in terms of its supplies and its ability to integrate those supplies into its frontline forces has already passed and that when the Russian big blows do come in four to six weeks probably they will come in a way that will be irreparably damaging to what is left of the Ukrainian armed forces. In terms of casualties, there's been no numerous reports, some of which seem wildly exaggerated, some of which seem undercounted. Uh, the, the general consensus figures for the uh, casualties of the armed forces of Ukraine is around about 200,000 or so at least in terms of killed and wounded. There are reports from Russian sources which to me seem over-egged that there's as many as 400,000 killed and wounded. I must stress, I don't know. All I can do is read the accounts that come out. And that uh, there are apparently as many as 30-odd thousand killed and wounded um, 
foreign mercenaries. Again, the Russian sources are claiming that they came up with this number via tracking various uh, open sources such as Facebook posts, to Twitter uh, posts, um, activity at local morgues in places like Poland. We don't know at the moment. Um, certainly the number of around about 200,000 killed and wounded, of whom at least 100,000 are dead, that seems to be a commonly accepted number even amongst Ukrainian sources. Either way, there is increasingly uh, seems to be a widespread devastation across the manpower of the armed forces of Ukraine. And as an addendum to that, there are protests breaking out amongst the relatives of the men who've been sent to the front, claiming that tens of thousands of them are missing and the Ukrainian government hasn't told the families where they are. Now, it could be that a lot of these men have been taken prisoner or they are dead somewhere in a mass grave and no one has bothered to tell the families. And perhaps that's not surprising given the chaos and madness that goes on on front lines, but it certainly gives lie to the idea that the Ukrainian government cares so much about actual Ukrainians. It ceased to do so a long time ago, if it ever did. So that's something to keep an eye on as a developing picture. The government of Ukraine is desperate to keep the number of casualties secret. But if it is the case that over that around 200,000 or over 200,000 are killed and wounded, they're not going to be able to hide that for too much longer. And they're not going to be able to hide the number of wounded either given that, that apparently there are increasing numbers of walking wounded or severely wounded men who can't return to the front, who are wheelchair-bound, who will need assistance for the rest of their lives, who uh, can't walk or find it very difficult to live independently. That's something you can't hide. And the Ukrainian government will try and palm that off onto the families of these men. But again, they can't hide the damage that that's going to cause. And it seemed that the Ukrainian population, which was already shrinking and has shrunk every single year since its uh, independence and the from the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union's collapse, that level of deterioration of population is not sustainable. Ukraine is, going, is, is becoming emptied. And that's a common thing across the uh, countries of the former Warsaw Pact, the former socialist countries, that after uh, the late 80s, when the socialist systems all imploded due to the actions of the men who were supposedly in charge of them, and largely anyway, the populations of all of these countries drastically declined, not just through mass migration, um, so people like Polish workers and workers from the Baltic states and Ukrainians becoming uh, migrant laborers across the West, uh, particularly in Western Europe, you get a lot of them in Britain, and so that's uh, had an impact on draining the population, but also the birth rates of all of these countries have catastrophically collapsed. If you look at the Baltic states, for instance, where you get these uh, yapping dogs of U.S. imperialism ruling them, ever since the independence from the Soviet Union and the USSR's collapse, the population of all of these countries has absolutely cratered. If you look at the uh, data from the World Bank, for instance, you can see the population of all of these countries, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, steadily rising until it peaks in 1990. And then that's the point where the USSR disappears. And then every single year after that, you get an absolutely catastrophic, uninterrupted decline. Now, for uh, Latvia in particular, this is a steep decline. Um, Lithuania has done only slightly better. Um, but also Estonia, the populations have really dropped off a cliff, as has the birth rate. 
and if you look at the long-term trend the uh, birth rate in, um, in, in Latvia for instance peaks in 1988 then drops off a cliff uh, over the next 10 years and has not recovered to its previous high point which was in 1988. There's a wider uh, point to be made here but I'll throw in a couple of other examples. So the Bulgarian population for instance, Bulgarian population was steadily growing until 1988 and then it starts to decline and fall and fall and fall and uh, you get the similar picture with the Bulgarian birth rate. Bulgarian birth rate actually reaches its peak around about 1974. Then there's a slow decline but there's a steep decline when immediately after the fall of the socialist system and you can see this this is just something you can google um, the decline in the birth rate is sharp and it does recover slightly after uh, the year 2000 but hasn't got back to anywhere near its uh, previous high point now you might say and some do make this argument oh well it's because uh, women have option access to more options now in terms of birth control etc well in actual fact in all of the socialist countries in the eastern bloc family planning and contraception access were always very very um, very very well provided for all the way through the socialist period and this went down of course very badly in uh, very uh, religious uh, Catholic countries like uh, Poland for instance but the birth rates in all of them remained very high until the till the 1980s and then it really drops off a cliff after the end of the socialist system and in fact the latest projections for like Latvia's population predict the country will basically cease to exist if the uh, combination of mass migration and low birth rates continues and so this is the bitter fruits of 30 years of capitalist restoration Though I should add, of course, that the birth rate in Britain has gone down as well. But uh, all of these countries, uh, not just the east of Europe, has the most spectacular examples of counter-revolution. But the Western European countries have also had spectacular uh, counter-reform movements and anti-working class movements that have uh, crushed um, working class organization, have atomized societies. And so what do you have across all of these countries that were part of the former socialist bloc? You have all of those things. You have the crushing of the working class. You have atomization, mass migration. You have uh, the triumph of like the most bitter reactionary uh, forms of ideology. And all of that creates an atmosphere where basically the biggest reason, I would say, for the decline of birth rates and the fall of the population is, is essentially the general atmosphere of the country is one where people are less and less likely to have children in it because they don't see a particularly bright future for any children that they have. Now, it is true, of course, that some of the more enterprising reactionaries, such as Hungary's Viktor Orban, has made great efforts to restore the birth rate, and he's had some success in this in terms of adopting um, systems of uh, rewards for those who have larger and larger families. Putin's trying something similar in Russia. But above all, it must be said, the birth rates peaked in all of these countries when the socialist system was at its height and those countries looked like they were in a, going in a positive forward direction and also that the working class population felt like they owned and had control over their own lives and, uh, and some influence over the destiny of the country. When all of that disappears, the birth rate goes down, the population collapses. And I think we, we can make a very strong case of the direct connection between the two. 
But it's worth just emphasising that point when you speak to any of these bitter reactionaries who want to go on about the triumph of the restored capitalism in Eastern Europe. And I've met a few people like this over the years. I met quite a number of Poles um, when I was working uh, in the trade union movement in Britain, some of whom were all right, some of them whom were the most sort of knuckle-dragging reactionaries you can possibly imagine. Though I should emphasize that the knuckle-dragging reactionaries were generally the, mo the middle-class Poles that I ran into. But it's worth asking these people that if this restoration of capitalism is so great, then why are these uh, populations of these countries dwindling? And this brings us back to Ukraine, of course, where the population of Ukraine went off a cliff after 1991. It dropped and dropped and dropped and continues to drop. And the answer lies in, of course, the not just the quality of life, but the atomization and alienation of the population and the crushing of the working class by the oligarchy. And I'll come back to that later on. But these are all things that are should every communist should be aware of because these disprove comprehensively the reactionary uh, case for the restoration of capitalism in Eastern Europe being all about freedom and enterprise and uh, getting rid of the socialist tyranny. Well, it turns out the socialist tyranny provided for stronger, more cohesive and happier nations than anything these capitalist reactionaries are capable of providing, which is a point that if you make it, that'll really wind up a Polish reactionary if you get the chance. Um, he won't enjoy that at all. So... Moving to other things before getting to the discussion of the uh, the peace plans for Ukraine and their viability. Uh, the other big events today out of Russia were, of course, the um, training exercises conducted by the Russian armed forces over the, the uh, readiness of their nuclear deterrents. And Putin, uh, as the, in his role as commander-in-chief, oversaw these exercises, which, of course, they duly informed the United States Armed Forces of before they carried them out, and even uh, the Pentagon spokesman had to come out and say, yes, we were informed of, of this, the Russians lived up to all their obligations under the um, treaties uh, of um, arms control and that govern the usage of and the drills around nuclear weapons. So even the Pentagon has to comment the Russians lived up to all their international obligations there. And so this was a comprehensive test of the land-based, air-based, and sea-based nuclear weapon systems that the Russian Federation has. Truly terrifying collection of uh, weaponry that I hope to God we never actually see in action because we wouldn't be seeing it for very long. But it's worth emphasizing that this uh, drill was carried out apparently successfully. And as one curiosity, as somebody who, uh, when I was a kid, was a fanatic for military aircraft, we saw today the footage of the Tu-95, the Tupolev-95 plane in action, which is known as the Bear, which is this enormous uh, propeller-powered plane which has been in service uh, first the Soviet Union and now the Russian Federation since uh, 1952 and is one of the uh, long-range strategic bombers that the Russian Federation still operates and it is capable of apparently flying around about 15,000 kilometers. Now it's been pointed out that of course this thing's so big and pretty damn slow even though it can apparently obtain an impressive speed uh, even as a propeller-driven plane. And But the cr critics of it point out that this thing can be spotted very easily by air defense systems. But the apparent usage uh, for it is that by being able to fly such a long distance and then having a nuclear missile payload on it, you can basically get um, a short-range strike out of it by flying this thing um, a long way 
towards its target and then letting go of the missiles with the apparent intent that the enemy uh, detection system will have less of a chance to spot something that's been launched from an, uh, an aircraft. I'm not sure of the technical details of that. I found it an interesting detail that they're still using uh, this gigantic plane from the 1950s. The Russians must see uh, some military uh, utility from using it. An interesting detail. But uh, Putin also um, today made several comments at a meeting of the uh, of the intelligence and security chiefs of the Commonwealth Independent States countries, which is, of course, the... Uh, umbrella organization that contains many of the former Soviet states, particularly in Central Asia. And Putin made a number of comments there that are quite interesting and uh, worth just dwelling on for a little while. He mentioned the uh, Nord Stream gas pipeline sabotage, which he all but names the United States as the, as the culprit for that. Um, he said, and I quote, they do not even stop short of openly subversive actions. I am referring to the explosions on the Nord Stream gas pipelines. This actually amounts to the destruction of the common European en energy infrastructure. This is being done, although, to put it mildly, these methods are doing colossal damage to the European economy and are seriously impairing the quality of life for millions of people. And besides, they are keeping silence about who has done this and who stands to gain from it. Uh, he's basically saying the US did it, but he's not openly saying that the US did it because uh, maybe the Russians are keeping that back as a surprise maybe they have something further on it but everybody knows that the US is the most likely culprit even if they got the morons in Warsaw to do it for them and of course the Warsaw reactionaries will do anything if it involves uh, targeting the Russians but increasingly uh, annoying the Germans as well is another one of their favorite things to do but he said several other things as well which is um, worthy of further attention. Uh, he mentioned, the, of course, the situation in Ukraine and dwelt on that for a little while. Now, when it came to the status of Ukraine, Putin made an interesting couple of comments, and I'm going to quote them here in full because it's worthy of just paying some real close attention to what he's saying here and what it means. And he says about Ukraine, at the same time, we can see the United States' real attitude to its client states. Ukraine was almost immediately turned into a testing site for military biological experiments and is being flooded with weapons, including heavy weaponry, without any heed to the Kiev regime's statements about its desire to obtain nuclear weapons. The Kiev authorities have declared this desire publicly, but everyone keeps silent. We also know about their plans to use a so-called dirty bomb as a provocation. Now, this is a uh, comment, of course, about the story that we've been talking about on these bulletins for most of this week. Regarding the Russians' um, talk about the uh, Ukrainians preparing either a low-yield nuclear device or a dirty bomb to go off in the, in the area around Kherson is what most of the Russian uh, correspondents are talking about, uh, being the likely venue for this attack. And the idea apparently behind it being that they would then set off this bomb and then try and blame it on the Russians. But of course, you know, why on earth, given the enormous nuclear weapons capacity of the Russian Federation, which we've just seen demonstrated today in terms of their six very successful, apparently successful, drills that they carried out, which demonstrated that they have absolutely no reason to uh, 
resort to such a low-tech tactic that was most favoured by the government of Saddam Hussein when they were getting desperate against the Iranians all the way back in the 80s. Why on earth would the Russian Federation, with all this nuclear weapons technology at its disposal, set off a dirty bomb in, in the middle of Ukraine in an area where they're actually well dug in and defending? You can see the logic behind the Ukrainian decision-making process here, which is that, well, we've spun the story to the Western audience that the Russians are losing, that Putin is mad. The Western propaganda machine has told us that over and over again. As I said the other day, uh, the Putin is a lunatic story has to be spun over and over and over again, because otherwise, if more people understood that the Russian government acts actually pretty rigorously in line with uh, international law, even if you think the law in question is wrong, far more so than the United States does, and conducts itself in a manner which is much more in line with international norms that are supposedly guarded by the United Nations, then you would start to question whether this story was actually true. So you have to, if you're the Western propagandist, you have to keep spinning the idea that Putin's mad for this story about the nuclear uh, device and the dirty bomb to make any sense. Because if you examined it for more than 10 seconds with a mind that wasn't clouded with all this bullshit, you'd realize that this story is garbage. And But I, I think that, as I said yesterday, the, the, this is going to be something which has largely disappeared from the front, the front pages in a week or so, because I think that the uh, Ukrainians will be told, this isn't a good idea, put it back in the box again. And again, like the, now the Russians have gone on record saying the Ukrainians have that plan, as Scott Ritter argues in the article I went through yesterday, it's less and less likely that anybody would believe the Ukrainians if they actually came out and did this and blame, tried to blame it on the Russians. So, and Putin, of course, also mentioned there that there was the question of the biological warfare labs in Ukraine, which we know exist because Victoria Newland and Marco Rubio confirmed they did, almost by accident. And the Russians will again be bringing that up at a UN Security Council meeting, where I expect the US will furiously deny all knowledge of it or claim they were all acting within the law. Though, if you were acting within the laws of the United States, why on earth do you need these things to be set up thousands of miles away in a country you've reduced to the status of a colony? Now, speaking of colonies, Putin also made a comment on the sovereignty or lack thereof uh, regarding Ukraine. And he said, and I'm going to quote his words in full here, we can see the goals of those who are doing this in Ukraine. And he's referring to what he said with the blackmail and pressure and intimidation tactics of the US. And going on with the quote, which has been made an instrument of US foreign policy. The country has actually lost its sovereignty and is being directly governed by the United States, which is using it as a battering ram against Russia, Belarus, which is a member of our union state, and the CSTO and the CIS in general. And of course, the question of Ukraine's sovereignty is something which, as um, Ash pointed out in our Telegram discussion group, is something that I've been talking about for months now, which is that this point about Ukrainian sovereignty, which all the blabbering morons on the soft left in Britain keeps going on about respecting Ukrainian sovereignty. I've been saying for months that Ukraine has no sovereignty. It doesn't. Ukraine ceased to have any sovereignty probably at least in 2014, arguably earlier, uh, as soon as the uh, government there crumbled in front of the pressure exerted upon it by the United States in uh, the or so-called Orange Revolution back in 2004. 
And this uh, sovereignty, Putin's right, it disappeared a long time ago. The ability of the Ukrainian government to exercise power over the landmass of the Ukrainian state was fatally compromised from the very earliest stages of its independence from the former USSR. It was always a very weak state. It was always subject to multiple influencing operations from the United States who sought to bring it into their orbit. And now what shreds of sovereignty might have remained have all gone. Ukraine cannot pay its own army. It cannot pay for its the upkeep of its own government. Half of its budget is made up of loans or uh, so-called donations from the European Union countries and the United States. It does not fully command its own army. NATO officers are responsible for much of the intelligence gathering and decision-making processes of the Ukrainian armed forces. And increasingly, foreign mercenaries make up large amounts of the assault troops that the Ukrainian armed forces are using. Without the assistance of the Americans and the Europeans to pay the bills of the Ukrainian state, the Ukrainian state does not exist. Also, final uh, point which comprehensively proves my point and Putin's, though, if you're listening, Mr. President, do please come on the podcast. Uh, I'm glad you enjoy the show. The point uh, that most underlines the fact that Ukraine has no sovereignty is that Ukraine couldn't even sign a peace deal. Remember, and I have mentioned this on multiple occasions before, but I will do so again. The negotiations overseen by Erdogan in Ankara earlier this year were getting to the point where an agreement was possible, where essentially the Ukrainian government agreed that Donetsk and Lukansk were gone, uh, that they were going to become independent states, and that Crimea was gone. And that if that was agreed upon, then the war could end. And this was an agreement that we have confirmation from American sources and from Ukrainian sources and from the Russian government was ready. What stopped it? Well, it was the collective actions of the NATO bloc, the Europeans and the British, and of course, most of all, the Americans, all of whom had become convinced, wrongly, as it turned out, that the Ukrainians could inflict some kind of defeat on the Russian armed forces and that this could be leveraged into regime change inside Russia itself. And for that reason, the Europeans, the British and the Americans all said that they would not provide the security guarantees that Zelensky was asking for. The Russians agreed to provide a security guarantee. They said that they would not and that they were that even if Ukraine wanted peace, the West, the collective West, as Putin calls it, did not. And that killed the agreement. And that proves the Ukraine has no sovereignty. There is no sovereignty when essentially foreign powers can tell you that you have to carry on with this war because we want you to. There's no sovereignty there. There's no sovereignty when your own citizens, and this is allegations made by the Russians, are experimented on by foreign powers in biological warfare labs, which apparently the Ukrainian government agreed to. And there was tests carried out on prisoners and psychiatric patients, just like, by the way, the Americans used to do inside their own country in the prison system of California and other and other states back pre-World War II and even sometime after World War II as well, in, well into the 1970s, in fact. So they've got form for this. Anyway, the point is that not only has Putin obviously been listening to Red Star Radio, but uh, on a more serious point, he's right about that. There's no question that this is a country with no sovereignty. So when John Kirby, 
there, as um, Andre Martinov says, the fake admiral, the who um, he's the spokesman for the Pentagon, says to in response to the incredibly cowardly letter from the uh, so-called progressives in the Democratic Party calling for negotiations that there wouldn't be negotiations except on Ukraine's terms. They, well, obviously, Kirby is a liar because Ukraine had an agreement that was ready to sign, which even the Kiev Independent, a pro government newspaper in Kiev confirmed was ready and that it was the particularly the British and the Americans that killed that agreement again that is not a country that has any sovereignty and Zelensky is not a president who actually has any power he exists as long as he is willing to throw thousands upon thousands of Ukrainians men and now women as well into the jaws of death essentially and that's how long he will be tolerated for, as long as he's capable of fronting this thing up. Which shows goes towards the point of not only is Putin right about that, but it, then this opens up a whole other set of questions regarding the eventual end of the war. So now Putin hasn't said that the Ukraine has no sovereignty before, I don't think. He has made question, raised questions about the role of the Americans and the domination of the Kiev government by the, uh, by the American-led bloc. But he hasn't said before that Ukraine has no sovereignty. And that's an interesting development. Because, as he said um, in a meeting last week, that um, they had no plans to destroy uh, the Kiev government when they went in. They, their plan was to do that deal that they almost got and then wind the war down. Now they're saying that well, that was their plan, but it isn't anymore. Now, of course, they are mobilizing at least 300,000 men out of the reserve, plus could be anything up to 100, another 100,000 who are volunteer mobilized volunteers, which is what Kadyrov, the head of Chechnya, called for. He called for self-mobilization in the regions, and apparently anything up to between seventy to 100,000 men have responded to that call and keep responding to it. Furthermore, Colonel Douglas McGregor said in an interview with um, Andrew Napolitano on his YouTube show uh, yesterday that the Russians could be looking to field an army of around a million men at some point soon. Now, even if they're just fielding an army of 500,000 men, that easily outnumbers what Ukraine has. If, as McGregor asserted in that interview, if he is right and that the Russian armed forces continue with the mobilization because the, the the meeting of the coordinating committee overseeing the war on the, the domestic front that was held yesterday by uh, Mishustin and Putin in, in Russia, they talked about ironing out the problems with the uh, mobilization and making sure that the right equipment was delivered, all of which implies heavily that McGregor is right, that this mobilization is going to continue. So why? Is it just so that they can take and hold Novorossiya, which is, of course, all the coast of what is now Ukraine, down to Odessa, down to the border with Romania, and that they can take and hold the area around Kharkov and Kharkov itself? Well, that's possible. Kharkov's a big city, as is Odessa, as is Nikolaev, um, they would need a considerable number of men to take that and ho to hold it. But if, and again, if McGregor is right, and there's every indication that he's a man, of course, who knows what he's talking about, and they're looking to field an army of a million men, that implies that something much bigger could be in mind. 
And this returns us to Putin's comment about Ukraine's lack of sovereignty. If the Russian government's collective position, and remember it's always about a collective position, Putin might be the first among equals, but he works in a collective with the other high-ranking members of the government. If their collective position that they have now decided upon is that not only is Ukraine essentially a puppet state, which is just literally exists so that the United States can wield it as a tool against Russia, and if this thing has no sovereignty, if its president is a basically just a stooge, and allowing it to exist will only uh, create more problems for them, then the obvious conclusion is that the Russians are moving to destroy the Ukrainian state, which is, of course, incredibly bad news for working-class Ukrainians and incredibly bad news for anybody who's going to be left in Ukraine who hasn't either fled or been killed. But it does look like that's where it's going. And the blame for this... The responsibility for this lies entirely in Washington and London and Paris and Berlin and Rome, if you want to count them as well. But they are the ones who made this happen. They are the ones who killed that peace deal. And they are the ones who, through absolutely refusing to countenance any discussion at all, any negotiation at all, they are the ones who have damned Ukraine into ceasing to exist. And you know what? There will be some in Washington who might shout and scream about it and call it a disgrace, but... They won't lose any sleep over it. Neither will the cynics in London or France or Germany or Italy, in truth. They are all still trumpeting the exact same line, that there can be no negotiation except in the event of Ukrainian victory. The latest puppet in charge of Rome uh, said this, Giorgio Maloney, the great faker, who really is in the tradition of Mussolini, but not in the way that everybody says, and that she's just a stooge of capital. And in this case, given that Italy is far weaker than it was in the time of Mussolini, uh, she's just a stooge principally of American capital. Uh, she's why she's banging on about support Ukraine to the bitter end. It's because that's what her American overlords expect her to say. But I digress. The point is that this decision that clearly has now been taken um, in the Russian government, that they can no longer afford to have Ukraine in existence on their border... This could have been avoided, and it's something which should have been avoided, but was not. And so that leads us into the discussion part of this episode, the more theoretical part of this episode, which is, could this peace deal, as it was on the table in March of this year, actually have worked, even if the Americans and the British and the European nations had agreed to it and provided Zelensky with the guarantees that he asked for. Could it be something that have worked? Now let's examine the pro before we get to the con. On the pro side of it, this is an approach that the Russians used successfully uh, with South Ossetia and the war, um, regard, uh, war between the Russian Federation and Georgia back in 2008 with another idiot in um, the form of Saakashvili uh, decided, blundered into a war thinking he had the Americans would come in and support him and of course they didn't. Thankfully, because then World War Three would have been on the horizon. But Saakashvili stupidly believed that the Bush administration's assurances staged a, a provocation. Duly, the Russians responded. And of course, they successfully froze that conflict in South Ossetia, which remains, of course, a nominally independent state, though recognized only by Russia and its closest allies. And 
it's part of Russia in all but name. But interestingly enough, in the early part of the war, or the latest stage in the war back earlier this year, the South Ossetians did mention moving towards a ballot of the population with the specific purposes of joining Russia, but essentially the Kremlin leadership told them that now was not the right time. So that conflict remains frozen, and relations with the Georgians actually improved over time. And now, of course, the Georgians and the Russians are doing record amounts of trade in the last year. So they did successfully freeze that conflict. And, of course, Georgia didn't join NATO and will probably not join NATO now, given their state of play. But um, what can that tell us about the situation in what was east of Ukraine, now west of Russia? If the peace plan proposed by and sponsored by Erdogan had succeeded earlier this year, would it have actually lasted? And it's a difficult question to answer. On the pro side of it, the Russians would have used all their experience that they gained through the South Ossetian question in making sure that uh, the borders of the new states were secure, of Donetsk and Lukansk, that is. They would have probably done a lot to economically develop those areas and would have worked overtime to ensure that the treaty was respected. It was, after all, in their interest to reach a treaty. However, on the con side of things, the contradictions inside Ukraine as a state were probably even worse than that of Georgia in terms of the instability of the state since 2014. The fact that the the basis of the modern Ukrainian state is this uh, fraudulent coup that took place in 2014, which is underpinned by the uh, Banderist militias, who are, of course, sponsored directly by oligarchs like Kolomoisky. And Kolomoisky has a interest, as do the rest of them, in a very weak central Ukrainian state, which is why he funded the Banderists in the first place, despite being Jewish himself. But, hell, they're not attacking his interests, so why does he care? And, of course, he used them to try and take control of Odessa so that he could run a essentially a drug-running operation for it. And that's according to information that's been given over to Russian security sources and, of course, Russian journalists by captured uh, Ukrainian Secret Service men, SBU men, that Kolomoisky was essentially running a drug-running operation through Odessa. And that's why he wanted to use the Banderas to seize control of the port area in order that, of course, he could be beyond the remit of the already weak central Ukrainian government. So what does this mean? It means that there's a lot of opportunity for these very well-armed and very well-funded militia groups to block this deal. And it would have taken the full commitment of the United States government to essentially deliver this deal. If the United States had been of a mind to make this bargain, they could have said to the Ukrainian government and all the proxy forces that exist within Ukraine, so all the far-right forces, all those forces that were the muscle behind the Maidan coup of 2014, they could have said to them, if you violate this deal, you're cut off. If you violate this deal, we'll make sure that all of the charges that could be brought against you from uh, criminal act for criminal activity, not just in Ukraine, but in other countries, because a lot of these people, the leaders, have a criminal record as long as your arm, that all of these charges do get brought against you, that your business interests, Mr. Kolomoisky, will be threatened, uh, that your drug-running activities will come to light. They could have issued all kinds of threats and bribes to these forces to abide by the deal. Would they have done, though? Probably not. And there's a very 
compelling reason as to why not. And that relates to much more than the the weak status of the Ukrainian state or the fact that its security services are flooded with like these absolute uh, hard right maniacal Banderas types. And that's the situation facing U.S. imperialism. And a situation facing U.S. imperialism is far more severe and perilous now than even back in 2008. Back in 2008, they got through the financial crisis and the recession uh, by essentially changing the regime around. The Americans uh, dumped uh, George W. Bush quite happily to do so. The U.S. ruling class switched in the main to being behind Obama as the new face of U.S. imperialism. And he would be able to do, give it a, a cosmetic facelift, so to speak. And they managed to get through that by essentially throwing money at the problem and clocking up even more huge amounts of debt. Uh, all these problems, of course, they just postponed the crisis, which is coming back to us now. So, therefore, by er the early part of this year, it was clear that not only is U.S. imperialism's domestic economy in a deep hole, entering into a recession that has been postponed for 14 years and now has finally returned to us. And this means that the domestic and the international situation for U.S. imperialism is significantly worse. And so therefore, they are in a much more aggressive and confrontational and desperate move than they were even 14 years ago. 14 years ago, they still had their occupation of Afghanistan going on. They could still pretend that they were going to win there. They were still in Iraq, and they could still pretend that there was going to be a positive outcome there. Uh, the situation vis-a-vis -vis China was not as severe as it is now. And the Chinese, of course, acting in their own interests, assisted the U.S. empire by agreeing to significantly up their purchases of dollar bonds in 2008 to basically make sure that the, the uh, U.S. domestic consumer market still was a profitable outlet for Chinese manufactured goods. So... The situation with regard to the rivalry with China was not as severe in 2008. All these situations are much worse now. They've lost in Iraq. They have been driven out of Afghanistan. Their economic situation is far worse. Their political situation is far more unstable inside the United States. I mean, this is why Russiagate was such a disaster, ultimately, for the U.S. political system, because essentially one part of it decided to make war on the president and do so in such a way as to create a system of rewards whereby the more hysterically anti-Russian you were the greater reward you got therefore making the way towards actual diplomatic solutions with the Russians domestically incredibly difficult that's a very unstable situation that the contradictions within U.S. capitalism created because of course the contradictions within U.S. capitalism uh, being a more deindustrialized and hyper alienated society becoming ever more so created the conditions where of course a con man like Trump can win an election and come to power and of course created the conditions for the meltdown of the establishment that his clowning around whilst in office caused and so you can trace the line of development from the decay of the economic situation, the increasing hollowness of U.S. capitalism, the increasing defeats suffered by U.S. imperialism on the global scale. All of this combines together to create an unstable domestic political picture for U.S. imperialism and a need to desperately assert itself against its foes, which is why they wandered into a situation where they are in 
upping the ante uh, with regard to the Chinese, and also they walked into this confrontation with the Russians. And this also takes us into a dive into history, because as Putin himself said in the documentary done by Oliver Stone, which is actually a very good three-part documentary. If you want to get hold of it, you can download it via uh, the Pirate Bay site, actually. Uh, you can download all three parts there. Very worth watching. Very interesting set of interviews. But Putin makes an interesting observation there, which he says, the policy towards Russia doesn't change, even though the presidents do. And what is the policy towards Russia? Well, it's the same policy that was outlined in the Wolfowitz Memorandum all the way back in 1992, in the dying days of the George H.W. Bush administration. And this is a document that's still floating around. You can find it on the, on the internet. It was written about extensively in the New York Times and Washington Post at the time. And this was a document that George H.W. Bush actually rejected, but the policy has remained the same. And this is, of course, foundational document of the, the neoconservatives. And in that document, they outline that it is their belief that no... Uh, single powerful state uh, or combination of states acting in unison should be able to recreate the power of the old Soviet Union because the area upon which the old Soviet Union existed contains a lot of resources that U.S. imperialism, of course, wants to get hold of and exploit. And they've been certainly successful in places like Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan uh, in terms of being able to get in there and exploit those resources, though increasingly, of course, they were unable to make uh, in the inroads they wanted to inside Russia itself. And the aim, as Wolfowitz outlined in blunt terms in that original 1992 document, was that Russia itself needed to be perpetually weakened or broken up um, if necessary, because otherwise it would return to power and would be able to challenge the imperial hegemony of the United States. And this is actually a prediction which has proven to be correct. By merely exerting uh, control over the gigantic space that uh, Russia exists in, Putin has challenged the U.S. empire without actually perhaps intending to. And this is a question that comes up over and over again, which is, why is the U.S. empire so hell-bent on a confrontation with Russia? Well, part of the answer is in that original foundational text of the neocons. And the neocons get a lot of attention from various analysts because they are the most blunt and obvious about the way in which they want to conduct the American empire or the American empire's interests. But the the focus on them by many people who rightly criticize them and lambast them misses the point somewhat. They are not the originators of this school of thought. It's not just that they've got bad ideas. It's that they are an expression of a very real material force that is U.S. imperialism. U.S. imperialism, and of course it's um, mini-me, British imperialism, the uh, master-turned-servant, needs um, to continually expand its access to resources to exploit, to sources of labor to exploit, to markets to dominate, that... It, it is compelled by the nature of the imperialist system to keep on expanding and expanding and dominating new areas of the globe, just as capital itself must continue to expand. And so capitalism in its rotting imperialist phase must continue to expand on the global level to dominate every market and 
source of natural resources and source of labor that they can possibly exploit. This is the the compulsion that U.S. imperialism is under. It's not down to just a bad set of individuals in terms of the neocons or a bad president or a bunch of maniacs in the Pentagon. They are all merely expressions of imperialism as a material force, as a set of interests. And yes, a U.S. president could, in theory, have come along and said, we will create a long-term peace with the Russians. We will not engage in this coup uh, that we uh, indulged in in Ukraine. We will not arm and equip the Banderists. Obama hinted at that, but never really made much of a political effort to try, because to go up against these gigantic interests which are hell-bent and compelled by the very system they exist within to pursue domination everywhere, it would take an enormous effort of an American president to defy those interests and an enormous political risk and personal risk as well. And who of them wants to do that? I mean, look at what they did to even Trump's mild attempts to move in that direction. And that was only so he could secure a pivot to more intense rivalry with the Chinese, of course. So these interests that exist are beyond any group. They're beyond even the neocons. They are just the most perfect intellectual expression of them. It is the very nature of US imperialism itself. And to return to the question of could this peace deal have lasted? Well, the Russians would have tried very hard to make it work, but two things would have stopped it. The completely unstable and collapsing nature of the Ukrainian state, which was in deep trouble before even this war began, and of course the interests of US imperialism. The interests of US imperialism are towards confrontation with the Russians with an ultimate aim of getting rid of uh, Putin, who's a capable le leader, and imposing some sort of stooge regime and if they can't have that then collapsing the russian state itself and when putin says that he's not exaggerating this is what these people think so the interests of u.s imperialism are towards a confrontation with russia if they can't get it in ukraine then they would try to get it elsewhere but ukraine would have the perfect combination of uh, ent entities within it which guaranteed a confrontation it had the Russian uh, speaking minority, uh, well, Russian speaking minority who consider themselves to be Russian in the East. It had the Banderist, it had the oligarchy that will basically just do anything that US imperialism tells it to do. And so if this peace deal had been signed and everybody had shaken hands, what would have happened? Most likely provocations would have continued. They might not have continued um, militarily in the immediate period, but there would have been provocations against the Russian-speaking population in places like Odessa. That would have been done under the urging of forces within the U.S. state and also playing on the weakness and corruption of the Ukrainian state and the dominant position of the oligarchy within it and the strong position of the Banderists who would have been livid and would have been running wild and possibly would have cooed out Zelensky had he signed this, which is why he was desperate for American and British security guarantees, not just against the Russians, but against the uh, the Banderists inside the Ukrainian state itself. And had this deal been signed, I think that the Banderists would have gone on a campaign of violence and intimidation against if not uh, the two newly independent republics, then they would have tried something in Odessa. They would have tried in every other Russian-speaking region. They would have probably gone on their pogroms against Russian-speaking populations. They would have done 
everything they possibly could to, to renew and start this conflict again, including terrorist actions inside uh, the Donetsk and Lukansk itself. They would have desperately tried to do that. The Russians are, of course, very good at suppressing these uh, terrorist insurgencies, but the Kiev regime would have had little or no choice but to indulge these Banderist fanatics if it didn't want to engage in the serious business of crushing them. But to crush them would have taken um, them to the point where they needed to crush the oligarchs, like Kolomoisky, who were funding them, which would have called into question the entire basis of the Maidan regime and the Ukrainian state. And so what you have here is a deadly combination of a weak state dominated by oligarchs with a huge paramilitary banderist and neo-fascist presence on the ground with uh, U.S. imperialism in a position where it is fading and therefore getting more aggressive, not less, and is more likely to go after um, its objectives, its long-term objectives, now than ever before in a, and again as i said in a very aggressive fashion and so you also have of course a president in biden who is not there who's gone mentally and so who is going to assert control over these uh, wild elements in the u.s state is it going to be kamala harris who appears to be free sheets of the wind most of the time no of course it's not who's going to uh, assert control apparently the cia director burns former um ambassador in moscow is a capable man who is taking a more realistic view of events but he could he control the wild elements in his agency and other agencies who are hell-bent on pursuing this line of confrontation with the russians i suspect not and so this brings us back to the question of could this peace deal have lasted my judgment is that it would not have lasted very long yes it would have bought a few months maybe something would have turned up but look look at the situation in the united states right now yes the economic situation has been worsened for certainly the european countries because of the uh, the sanctions uh, war with the russians and the economic downturn in europe will certainly visit itself upon the united states very soon but even without the the war and even without the sanctions regime that has been imposed since february late february of this year the u.s economy is still heading into a downturn the u.s power across the world is still diminishing the contradictions of u.s imperialism mount up every single day and increasingly aggressively pursues these rivalries with the russians and the chinese and lashes out against any country which dares defy it so we were heading back towards this war one way or another there is unfortunately this is how uh, decaying imperialism behaves this is how a dying empire behaves and there would have been a renewed war at some point in the in the very near future which is something that a lot of the russian military commentators are saying which is even if you got a peace deal it wouldn't have lasted because the contradictions in ukraine led us right back to this point of uh, renewing the war of starting it all over again uh, somehow and U.S. imperialism is compelled to start this again, somehow. And so, unfortunately, the only conclusion that I can draw, given the state of U.S. imperialism, given the contradictions within Ukraine, given the global position of U.S. imperialism as a fading uh, but still dangerous force, imperialism is going to lash out everywhere and at everything on its way down. And that, of course, creates a lot of dangers, but for us, who are, are communists, it creates 
a lot of situations to respond to. And this is why it's more important than ever to have a firm uh, Leninist understanding of imperialism as a system, not just as a bad set of decisions made by bad political actors, but as a system which is not negotiable with. It's not something that can be appeased. It's not something that can be brought into line by a set of treaties or international institutions. It's a, it's a force that either is destroyed or it destroys countless countries before it eventually destroys itself. Because the US, of course, is hollowing itself out whilst undergoing this process, hollowing itself out through financialization, hollowing itself out through the tendency of capitalism to, as I've said before, go from the circuit of money, commodity and production of commodities back to money again to cutting out the commodity production and just moving from money to money which leads to the hollowing out of whole economies through financialization which leads to the uh, atomization alienation and collapse in civilizations that is going on all the way across the western world right now and in those situations war and the horrors that go with it inevitably follow along unless imperialism is confronted and destroyed and it can only be comprehensively destroyed by the domestic working class in the United States and of course in Britain, France and Germany. It is that which we must now concern ourselves with. How to build up a serious layer of communists across the working class who have this understanding of the tasks of the working class in this era of decaying and dangerous imperialism and that is the project to which we should all be turning ourselves at this very important moment in our history now thank you for listening i'll be back again tomorrow with more of the same and i'll leave you with a bit of inspirational music thank you very much i'd like to sing uh, a rebel song which i'm very proud to be able to sing because it was sung by a great man of labour in Ireland called James Larkin. It's called The Rising of the Moon. At the rising of the moon, at the rising of the moon, with your pike upon your shoulder at the rising of the moon. And come tell me, Sean O'Farrell, tell me why you hurry so. Hush a vocal, hush and listen, and his cheeks were all aglow. I bear orders from the captain, get you ready quick and soon. For the pikes must be together at the rising of the moon. At the rising of the moon, at the rising of the moon. For the pikes must be together at the rising of the moon. And come tell me, Sean O'Farrell, where the gathering is to be. At the old spot by the river, quite well known to you and me. One more word for signal token, whistle out the marching tune. With your pike upon your shoulder at the rising of the moon. At the rising of the moon, at the rising of the moon. With your pike upon your shoulder at the rising of the moon. A 
out from many a mud-walled cavern eyes were watching through the night. Many a manly heart was beating for the blessed morning light. Murmurs rang along the valley to the banshee's lonely croon. And the thousand pikes were flashing by the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon, by the rising of the moon. And the thousand pikes were flashing by the rising of the moon. All along the singing river, that black mass of men was seen. High above their shining weapons flew their own beloved green. Death to every foe and traitor, whistle out the marching tune. And Harami boys for freedom tis the rising of the moon. Tis the rising of the moon, tis the rising of the moon. <laughs> 